Father's Day is a day that uh, many of us reflect on our childhood, as Tiffany said. Uh, for some people, unfortunately, it's, a, it's some sad thoughts, but uh, a lot of us can, can almost smell the backyard, backyard barbecue. Uh, Father's Day reminds some of you, I heard a couple of guys talking about a certain car that their dad loved, and they'd go for a ride, and this car, it's finally the weather's good enough so you can get a car out, one of those special cars. And, uh, when I think back, it's always with a bit of nostalgia. I grew up in a little, very small Alaskan village, and and uh, Dad was huge. And uh, when we'd go out and do things, it was always follow Dad, and, and uh, Dad kept us safe. And we'd pile all seven of us into a little our little Willie's Jeep, the 52 Willie's. Uh, Brian's still driving, and go out the road and have a picnic or uh, pick berries or things like that. So great memories. Uh, I was completely unprepared to leave that, the small town where I went to high school and come down here to Portland to go to college. Knew nothing about cities. I uh, flew down here with Mark Moffat, and we were both scared to death. Uh, we had no clue how to navigate a city, and uh, we both remember climbing off that airplane at PDX. This is in the days where it had stairs, you know, you had to get on on the tarmac. And at the moment we came out of the airplane door, we were completely enveloped in this horrible smell from Camus. The wind was blowing the wrong way. And so, and both of us thought, oh my word, this is what Portland smells like? <laughs> and we thought, oh my, it's going to be a, a long, long year. Uh, and it was a long year. Classes started, and uh, I would sit there in class dreaming about moose hunting and sheep hunting, and it was September, you know, and Mark and I, now Mark and I were both, we both got good grades, but we were not exactly model students, let's say. Uh, one day we were both sitting, we were sitting next to each other in the very back row of our Bible Pentateuch class, and Mark had gotten a, a hometown newspaper, and so he's holding it up in front of both of us while we ate brownies that my little sister had sent to us. And, and uh, when the class was over and we walked out of the class, several friends asked us why we didn't leave when the prof asked us to leave. And we said, we never heard him ask. We were, we were talking too much. So, uh, you know, you know uh, I was a good kid, but Mark was just a bad influence on me. <laughs> Or something like that. And by the way, if you're a Moffat grandkid, I have a lot more stories of, of your grandpa, and I can be bribed with cookies. That'd be fine. We were so homesick, so unprepared. Not only was it hunting season back home, but I'd left a uh, high school sweetheart behind, and it was hot. It was hot here. One of the hottest Septembers on record. Uh, no air conditioning in these tiny little cramped, Dorm rooms, uh, sleep, laying there on a bunk bed, sweating and dreaming of frosty mornings out in the, in the fall and going hunting with dad. And, and to pass time in the class, I would make lists. I made dozens of lists of all to-do things, what I needed to do to go to a hunting trip there or a camping trip there. None of them happened, of course. And, and there were people. There were people everywhere. I, I asked an upperclassman once, 
uh, where I could go to get away from people. And he said, oh, right next door in, in Montevilla Park. Uh, go, go in the evening, uh, Montevilla and 82nd. And, and so I waited until almost dark, and I went over there, and hoping the park was empty. It wasn't anything but. It, there were people, not just people, but scary people. There were drug dealers and, and shady characters lurking in all of the shadows. I just wanted to go home. Just wanted to go home. Last week, we opened a brand new sermon series in a New Testament letter that was addressed to a bunch of homesick people. It had been 30 years since the death and resurrection of the Lord, and, and uh, Peter, a disciple of Jesus, the same one who denied Christ at his trial but was forgiven and then restored, Peter wrote a letter to distressed, homesick people in an area of the world called Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey. And, and he wrote to these people, he acknowledges their homesickness in the very first line of his letter. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles. These were people who knew that they had been specially chosen by God. They were elect, and yet they were, they were exiles. They were in an alien culture. They didn't fit there. They didn't have any of the rights and protections afforded Roman citizens. And, and as foreigners, they, they knew that they constantly lived under the threat of mistreatment. The, the law was not on their side. Bigotry. Not only were they aliens, but they were part of a religion considered a cult by the Roman government. And, and if somebody was part of a cult, you didn't have to give them religious freedom. You could do anything you want. So here's this, these groups of people in Asia Minor who felt like strangers and total misfits. So Peter knew this, and, and he addressed his letter to them to, to answer some of the questions that were on the minds of these followers of Jesus. Like, how are we supposed to live the gospel in a hostile culture? If we are chosen by God, if we are God's elect, why are all these bad things happening to us? Why isn't God protecting us? What, do, what, what, are, we, what are we supposed to do? How, why do we have to live in fear every day? Is this how God shows his favor? If it is, how about if I go unfavored, you know? Questions like these were not just unique to first century believers. Uh, I think they've been on the minds of Christians ever since Christ was here. Uh, we're perhaps most tempted to ask questions like these when, when, uh, when we're tired. When you're, you're at the long into a, a long sickness of some kind. When you're tired of problems, you're tired of being under pressure, you're feeling weak and, and perhaps in, in pain as well. So if you've ever wondered where God was when you were struggling, if you've ever felt like maybe God was a little distant and you wondered if you were being punished for something, you'll want to listen to this letter from the Apostle Peter because it turns out Peter knew exactly how his readers felt. He had himself felt persecution. He knew what it was like to be mistreated. He had been behind bars for trying to tell people about Jesus Christ. 
And while Peter understood what his readers were experiencing, that you'd expect him to come alongside, you know, come alongside and say, you know what, I know what you're going through. I've been there too. You know, it's just really tough. But he didn't do that. He didn't say, it's okay to feel bad. You have it really rough. Yeah, I understand. Instead, Peter challenges his readers to get a a different perspective. Here is verse 2. Writing to those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient in Christ. There, by the way, that's the Trinity, all in one verse, Father, Son, and Spirit. And sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now look at verse 3. Here's the new perspective. Praise be to God the Father, uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. No sympathy, no advice on, on how to make life easier when things are rough for you. Instead, Peter instructs his readers to practice a very, very important spiritual exercise. And here it is. The first and most important thing you can do when you are feeling like an alien, when you're feeling homesick or discouraged or rejected or, or beat down by pain is praise God for who he is. Praise God. We are, in fact, made to praise God. We are never more ourselves than when we, were, we are telling God what we love about him. One of the best examples of this comes from the book of Acts in chapter 16, where Paul and Silas, by the way, the same Silas that helped Peter write First Peter, Paul and Silas uh, had gone into Philippi. Remember, they were preaching the gospel there, and uh, the Roman authorities didn't appreciate them. They flogged them. They threw them in the prison. They put their feet in stocks, and there they are, hurting, bruised, miserable at midnight. And what are they doing? They're singing hymns. They're singing praises to God. Because the first and the most important thing that you can do when you're going through tough times is praise God. After commanding his readers to praise God, Peter then lists some reasons to give God praise. Every believer has three things as a result of their new birth in Christ. So if you're looking for reasons to praise God, here are three things. Verse 3 again says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Now look at this. Into, number one, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope because of salvation in Jesus Christ. And, and the hope that we have is not like, I hope something. It's not wishful thinking. You know, you find a, a four-leaf clover and uh, you, you put it in your pocket and you go and you buy a, a lottery ticket hoping for good luck. Not that kind of hope. In the second century, the uh, Egyptian astronomer Ptolemy believed that the shoot, when, when you saw a shooting star, that was a sign that the gods were looking down. So you make a wish when you see a shooting star, and the gods will grant it. Not that kind of hope. Blow your birthday candles out, you know? Blow the candles out, make a wish. You know where that came from? This is going to destroy birthday candles for you. <laughs> kind of like Christmas trees. You know, it's pagan Christmas. Well, they got pa- pagan roots and birthday candles. Yep. The ancient Greeks would bake cakes 
and then take them to the temple of the goddess Artemis, which is not a nice goddess at all, goddess at all, but they, they would adorn these cakes with candles to please the god of the moon. And when the candles were blown out, the smoke carried your wishes, your hopes, to the moon gods. So there you go. Ruined it. No more birthday candles. Cannot blow them out. Peter isn't speaking of blowing. He's not talking about, you know, you take a dandelion, a dried dandelion, and you blow on it, and you make a wish while the seeds go into your neighbor's yard and get in their grass. <laughs> Peter is not talking about wishful thinking. Living hope is based on the historical fact of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now, there's nothing that feels more final than death. If you've ever watched someone die, you know what a helpless feeling it is to, to uh, stand there or sit there and just, and just wait. You, there's nothing you can do to reverse death. But the Lord did it. The Lord reversed death. Uh, he conquered our last and our worst enemy, by coming back to life after three days. Now, that's something we can always praise God for, that we have this living hope. The second thing that Christians have, and the second thing that should move us to praise, is in verse 4. Uh, 3b says, in, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, number one, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So new birth, salvation in Christ, gives believers in Christ an eternal inheritance. You can praise God for that. Now, inheritance was, inheritances were a really big deal in ancient Israel. Last Sunday, I read some verses from Genesis chapter 12 where, where God delivered to Abraham what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And in that covenant, God promised that he would bless Abraham's descendants that he would make them into a great nation, that he would uh, give them a special homeland of their own, and that through that Jewish nation, all the, all the people of the earth would be blessed. God kept his promise to Abraham. He miraculously intervened to give Joshua and the tribes of Israel possession of the land that was previously called Canaan. It became Israel. And, and, uh, but God, when he did that, he knew that Inheriting land could cause a lot of problems. And so God wrote into the law of Moses provisions of, of how the land would pass from one generation to the next. Remember our study of Elijah a few months back when King Ahab wanted to have a little piece of property owned by a man named Naboth. And, and Naboth struggled with that because he said, I can't sell it. This is my family property it's, and I'm not in hardship. I, I don't have the right to sell this land. Of course, Queen Jezebel stepped in and killed Naboth, and Ahab got the land anyway. But it wasn't right. If someone did sell their land because of hardship, the contract had to have in it a provision for someone else in the original families, uh, 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 in the original family, to buy the land back again. And regardless of how many times the land changed hands, every 50 years the title went back to the original owners. Now, some of you probably know all too well the problems that inheritances can bring. Uh, in the prodigal son parable that Jesus told, the younger son demanded his share of the inheritance before his father died. He wanted it be now, when he was still too young to, to handle it wisely. The dad gave in, 
And the son wasted his whole inheritance, which is very, very common. I read an article in Market Watch that said that one third of the people in the U.S. who get an inheritance lose it all within two years. <laughs> Through Christ, we have an inalienable, imperishable inheritance. We have uh, we have a guaranteed reservation to spend eternity with Christ. Ever go to a to check into a hotel, and uh, you walk up to the counter, and it always happens when you're it's the latest at night, and you just wanna. You just want to get done and go to your room. But you walk up there and they go, we don't, have your, we don't have a room for you. We don't have a reservation. So you pull out your smartphone and you show them the email that you got with the confirmation number on it. And they go, well, we don't have that number in our computer. Oh, it's so frustrating. It's just maddening. You stand there, you go, but, 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 but I got reservations. I mean, look at the email. Well, what was your name again? Uh, do you have any ID with you? Could I, could I see that email again? You will not have to appeal to any manager to get your eternal inheritance. It is absolutely a done deal and secure. Your reservations are locked in an eternal cloud, far better than, than the Microsoft cloud. Can't be hacked. No matter what your circumstances are, you, praise, you can praise God for a living hope. No matter what problems you're going through, you can praise God that you have an eternal inheritance. And third, we can praise God for his divine protection. It's in, in verse 4 again. This inheritance is kept for you, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are, here's the, here's the phrase, shielded by God's power until, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Imagine God holding this, this huge shield over you. If something bad makes it through that shield or around that shield, it's because God chose to let it happen. It's not that he couldn't stop it. Whatever comes into your life has already been filtered by the Father's shield. So what's the worst thing that could happen? I asked that question many times when I used to travel to uh, war zones in Africa. What is the worst that could happen? Well, the worst that could happen is that you die. Um, so I'd, I'd work with that. Uh, I would die. Okay, so if I died, I would go to be with Christ because God promises to uh, protect and to preserve our souls. That's not a bad deal, going to be with the Lord. My wife would go under the protection and the care of, of the church. That's pretty good. My kids would get supernatural attention because God promises to be a father to the fatherless, you think God could be a better father than I was? Probably so. So really, how bad was the worst? Not that bad. I think you have to deal with the death question. And once you deal with the death question, you're, you're free to praise God for anything less until you have dealt with the worst possible thing that could happen. You'll be fearful. Look at these Psalms. Psalm 118, in my distress, I prayed for the, to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, 
I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 56, I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God. So why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? All they can do is kill me. Peter said, yes, you are exiles. Yes, I know you are feeling homesick. Yes, you are suffering in unjust things. But you can still praise God for all the things that you have in Christ. No one can take away your living hope. No one can take away your internal inheritance. No one can take away God's protection. And then when Peter gets to this point in in writing his letter, he digresses. In fact, he digresses three different times. It's like he's writing along and then he thinks, by the way, and that's what he does in verses 6 and 7, by the way, concerning those trials, and he gets done talking about the trials and then he goes, by the way, uh, about Jesus, he has some thoughts about Jesus that he's going to share. And then in verses 10 to 12, he does it again. And by the way, I mean, it goes from one thought to the next. By the way, about that salvation in Christ. Now, I'm only going to deal with the first two by the ways this morning, but you can study the third one on your own. It's actually huge, the, the doctrine of salvation. I, I, I studied it and I go, well, okay, there's a half hour sermon all in one section. I guess I better not do that one. We'll do this other one. So let me start in verse six. In all this, in all this, referring to the benefits of the new birth in Christ, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds. Now, I don't know why, but for in this verse, the, the New International Version, which many of you use, and I usually use it, the NIV smooths over a very important phrase that other translations highlight as, as they should. Here's the English Standard Version. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, and here's the phrase, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The King James puts it, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. New American Standard puts it, in this way you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That phrase is very important. And it's the first of four truths that I want to share with you about about these trials. Number one, Trials are sometimes necessary, if need be. In this, we simply have to trust God. Because many times, perhaps most of the time, we don't really know why we're going through what we're going through. We live in this little tiny slice of time, and God's purposes are are so much bigger than even time. So we can't know everything, but we do know God, we know his character, and we know that he uses pain and trials to do good things like humble us and force us to trust him, to show his power, and many other reasons. Trials are sometimes necessary. Number two, trials are not fun. We don't, uh, we don't live in denial as Christians. Oh yeah, this is great. We're not masochists, you know. Hit me again. Yeah, that felt really good. Verse 6 says, says they're grieved or distressed by trials. It, it is not fun. Christians are not out of touch with reality. 
You, you don't go into this hypnotic trance where you don't really feel the pain anymore and you're unaware of everything, so God gets you through. No, it hurts. It hurts. The trials that Peter's referring to are painful, they're distressing, they're exhausting. And I can tell you that I, for one, am no pain hero. I'm not a pain hero. I sometimes hear Christians talk about what they've gone through. Uh, you know, if they've got diabetes or if they've gone through cancer or they've gone through an accident or an injury and, and they will say, I, I, I would do it just this way again. I would take my diabetes or my cancer or this accident again because of all that God has shown me and, all, uh, and, and done for me through this. I admire those people greatly, but I'm not there. Not there. I hate back pain. I hate it. I hate every minute of it. Sometimes I, I cry out to God in the middle of the night. I'm tired of hurting. I don't like the limitations that pain puts on me and upon on my wife, our marriage. I, I don't like not being able to help our grown children when they're moving from one house to the next. Or, you know, when, when there's heavy lifting to be done, dad is supposed to do, be there to help out. I'm worthless. Can't help anybody move. In fact, my boys have to help me. Greg came over the other day to do something that I should have been able to do. I'm not into pain. Trials are not fun. Number three, trials prove the metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, the metal of faith. Verse 7 says, these trials have come so that, the prove, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So pain And trials are the proving ground of faith. The things that God teaches you through trials are are valuable, more precious than gold, it says. Now, gold has to get very hot, you know, to get the impurities to, to rise to the surface. They can be skimmed off. But the refiner's fire, when he's refining gold, it is not an uncontrolled fire. It's not like the fire in the gorge last year that just just burned up everything. Gold is purified with the right kind of fire at the right temperature applied in the right place in the right amount of time to produce the right result. God's furnace of affliction refines all of us, refines us as his children. God never lets the trials destroy his children. He wants to refine them. The lyrics of Refiner's Fire make a great prayer. Let let the heat of the refiner's fire purify my heart and make me holy. So trials are sometimes necessary. Trials are not fun. Trials prove the metal, the strength and the purity of faith. And number four, trials glorify God. That's the last part of verse seven. Trials result in praise, honor, In glory, when Jesus Christ is revealed, some things will not make sense to us until we see Christ. That's the way it is. When you talk to Linda Talman about her journey with cancer the last several years, uh, you cannot help but give glory and praise to God. For God has answered prayer and honored her. 
We all want to put our, our best foot forward, but sometimes God says, put your pain forward and let people see your pain. Few things are more humbling than having to let other people see where you're hurting. God sometimes puts you on a pedestal where you don't want to be and where other people are looking at you and what they're saying is not about you, it's about God. They're saying, wow, what a great God we have. Romans 12 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Doesn't matter if your body is strong or weak or disabled or diseased. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That results in praise and honor and glory going to Jesus. That's the end of verse 7. Now the second digression is in verse 8, where Peter writes, by the way, about that Jesus I just mentioned. Verse 8 says, though, uh, through him, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, Peter knew Jesus pretty well. Uh, he had traveled with him and, and spent all this time with him. But here, it's interesting. He commends people who have never met Jesus. He, he compliments them. He says, you've never met Jesus like I do, but still, you believe in him and you have great joy in your faith. He says, you're getting a taste of what it's going to be like in eternity when we can tell him for all of eternity the joy that he's given us. God wants humans to decide to trust him. When God first put two humans in the Garden of Eden, uh, he delighted in their trust. He delighted in their fellowship. God put a tree in the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he wanted Adam and Eve to choose to trust him enough not to take the fruit of that tree. Trust me, God says, you don't want to know evil. You don't want to know it. But Satan convinced Eve to question God, and we know the result. There is a sense in which the trials that come into your life are like that tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. God gives you new birth in Christ. He transforms your heart and he gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives you an eternal inheritance that can never perish or fade or, or, or spoil. He shields you by his power. And then he asks, can you trust me to not tell you what this is all about? Can you give me praise when you're going through trials that make no sense at all to you? Can you trust me to bring into your life the trials that I think God says are necessary? Can you trust me when you're homesick and you feel completely out of place in the world? Can you trust me to refine your character and to make you like gold? Can you trust me to do what's best for you and for the kingdom of God? Or do you know a better way? Think about that. That's what we say to God. Yeah, I know a better way. What a silly, silly thought. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we do feel like 
aliens sometimes and strangers on this earth. And, and uh, we are the first to acknowledge that we certainly don't understand all that goes on. We don't understand much of the difficulty that uh, is going on right now in people's lives in Cornerstone. doesn't make any sense. We thank you that uh, you are our shield. You have a plan for us that goes beyond time, and we can trust you. Help us to trust well. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.